the issues that drove Luther, not just the Reformers, but Luther early on in the Reformation, and the dilemma that leads him to the Reformation turn that he takes is an issue about idolatry and the search for the true God and knowledge of the true God. And it's not merely a sociological issue. It's about how he can know whether he's had contact with the true God. The ultimate resolution of that for Luther is not a rejection of the liturgical and sacramental tradition of the church, but rather a return to an undistorted earlier understanding of the sacramental and liturgical life of the church. The God that uh, Luther ultimately discovers is the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, and there is no other God than that. And he continues to come to us and give himself to us through word and sacrament. That's a sociological question because it's about how you come to have communion with God, but it's also a question of the identity of God. Who is the true God? The true God is the one who has shown himself in Jesus Christ. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 176 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for Reformation Sunday 2018. During this conversation, they'll talk about why these passages may have been chosen for Reformation Sunday, how idolatry and knowledge of the true God was key to the Reformation, and they'll also discuss matters like the new perspective on Paul, what the righteousness of God is in Romans 3, and how the word gospel is being used in the book of Revelation. Before we get into the episode, though, we wanted to extend an invitation to you to sign up for our weekly newsletter, In Medias Race. In Medias Race is our weekly newsletter where we send you out a digest of all things Theopolis, from articles to podcasts and video series. We actually just started an extended video series on how to read the Bible, and if you're on that list, you'll receive each video a week early. So if you'd like to sign up, you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, or you can head to the link down there in the show notes for you. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Brian Motes and remotely with Alistair Roberts. And today we're discussing the readings for the uh, October 28th, 2018 on our Lutheran lectionary that's marked as Reformation Sunday, a celebration of the Reformation. And the texts for Reformation Sunday are Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, Romans 3, verses 19 through 28, and then uh, a choice between two different passages in the Gospels, one being John 8, verses 31 to 36, and the other being uh, Matthew 11, verses 12 through 19. So one of the questions I had is looking at these passages is why these passages would be selected for uh, Reformation Day celebration. And I can make sense of some of them at least. Uh, Revelation 14 verses 6 through 7 actually uses the word gospel. It's the eternal gospel that's being preached by the angel that's flying through the sky. So that would that would link it to the concerns of the Reformation, which is about a recovery of the gospel of the New Testament and trying to, to uh, remove the distorting accretions and the, the theological and practical, practical distortions that had uh, overwhelmed the gospel during the Middle Ages. So I'm, I'm assuming that that's on the, on the lectionary list because of the 
uh, phrase eternal gospel. Uh, when we get to that passage, we'll see that the way that the eternal gospel gets expressed there is not the way that Protestants might expect. The reading in Romans is a kind of a classic, a classic Reformation type reading contrasting the law to the revelation of the righteousness through Jesus Christ. A justification, it's a justification passage. Justification does not come by the works of the law, but rather by the uh, faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, or as we might conclude, by the faith of Jesus Christ for all those who believe. But it's that that makes sense as a as a Reformation passage because it's part of Paul's argument about justification in the book of Romans. John 8, verses 31 to 36 is talking about freedom and slavery. And I, I wonder if that's seen as as a Reformation-related passage because of the emphasis placed on the liberating power of the gospel that the Reformation brought. I think of uh, uh, Luther's early treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the church and the need to liberate the church from the various captivities of uh, Catholicism. And um, maybe John 8 uh, fits in as a, uh, as a passage about that liberty. Matthew 11 is uh, Jesus' rebuke to the generation uh, to whom he appears. He's come, doing, he's come to, uh, uh, performing all these wonders, uh, and yet uh, people don't acknowledge him. The kingdom has been moving ahead, uh, and uh, yet uh, the people, uh, particularly the scribes and Pharisees who were the leaders of Israel, don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Um, in spite of all the signs that he's done, in spite of the announcement by the prophets, the witness, various witnesses that have been sent to bear witness to him, and he compares this, the generation to a group of children who don't know what music is playing. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces. They play the flute, they, they don't dance, play the dirge, and they don't mourn. They don't, they don't recognize the tune of the times. How does that fit with the Reformation? Uh, maybe it's a, it links up with Reformation Day celebrations because of the emphasis on Jesus coming as a... He's announcing the gospel. He's announcing something new. He's announcing the kingdom and there's violent opposition to it. He's announcing the kingdom, but many people don't hear and they don't uh, take his cues. So uh, at least those are some, some uh, stabs at trying to link these various passages with, uh, with the Reformation. The fact there's no reference, Old Testament reference, this week is a little bit disappointing. I think the Reformation also involves a deep rooted, rootedness in the Old Testament. On the Matthew reading, I wonder whether it's the turning of the times that the law and the prophets, mm. or the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And at this point, there is the advent of the gospel. And that involves uh, an understanding of the times, the distinction between law and gospel, that sort of thing. And those themes, I think, coming out in the, the failure of people mm -hmm. to tell the times. And the contrast also between John as one associated with the law and prophets who neither eats or drinks and the Son of Man who brings a new freedom and joy. Mm, right. So, um, so you, you don't think that uh, uh, the, these selections reflect a, um, the fact that uh, Protestants are New Testament Christians. That's not <laughs> the reason why we don't have an Old Testament lesson. Maybe it's a Lutheran lectionary. If it was a Reformed lectionary, it would definitely have Old Testament. 
<laughs> yeah, it would have a passage about Josiah or Hezekiah or Joash smashing down the idols. Uh, it'd be an iconoclasm text. That would be a good Reformation Day passage for uh, a Reformed church. I say that somewhat jestingly, but that really is a, just historically speaking, it's an important part of the Swiss Reformation and the Reformed wing of the Reformation was uh, uh, iconoclastic movements. Um, Carlos Iredin's book on the uh, the war against the idols is, uh, you can trace the development of the Swiss Reformation by looking for events of iconoclasm. When you see statues being defaced, then you know the Reformation has come. And in retrospect, that looks like a, uh, may look like a frenzy or an extreme. A lot of people mourn the destruction of uh, much of the, or, or defacement of much of the art of the Middle Ages uh, because of the Reformation. The Reformers really did, did see themselves in continuity with those reforming kings of Israel. And they saw themselves breaking down uh, idolatrous, idolatrous worship uh, in a very physical, direct way by uh, defacing or demolishing images and statues uh, that had you know, that had become had been used in idolatrous ways. That had, you know places that had become uh, somehow charged with sacred power and images that had been seen as as having uh, uh, giving giving uh, some kind of special contact with God. Uh, and for a long time, I've I've cited uh, Calvin's uh, inventory of relics as a as a neglected masterpiece of the Reformation, uh, and I think it ex- explains the the reformed the, the reformed iconoclasm. The inventory of relics is partly just satire. Calvin is going through all of the he's giving a tabulation of all the relics that he knows of around Europe, and pointing out how ludicrous the relic veneration is. Part of the ridiculousness of the of relic veneration is uh, the the fact that you have multiple examples of the same relic. I think he claims that there are multiple foreskins of John the Baptist in different shrines around Europe. Uh, there are enough fragments of the cross, he says, you could build Noah's Ark from the fragments of the cross. There's an enormous amount of uh, Mary's breast milk that's been kept in vials throughout Europe. He says something kind of uh, scandalous about uh, Mary would Mary would have had had to have been a cow to produce as much milk as there is uh, scattered around Europe. So there's this there's this kind of satirical element to it, but it's I think at the heart of it, what he's what he's concerned about is that relics, images, icons, they hold out promises of contact with God, of of fellowship with God, that they can't keep. God has not promised to be uh, with His people through statues and relics. He's promised to be with His people in his word, as he speaks to them in his word, and as he uh, invites them to his table and as he brings them into his kingdom through baptism. And so in several places in that inventory of relics, Calvin brings the issue back to the, sac- the what I think is really the heart of it, the, the sacramental issue. The uh, relic veneration and other practices of the medieval church had been distracting people and enticing them to seek God in places where God had not promised to be found. And what the reformers are trying to do is to direct people to those places and to those events and those locations where God has said he will be and God has said he will bless his people. And that challenge to idolatry held alongside the um, the issue of justification by faith alone. It really presents the object of our faith as primary, that where that object is where we're distracted as to the true 
nature of the object of faith, then that faith will become caught up on things that give no comfort, that give no assurance, and end up driving us into error, into um, into a form of unbelief as well, and superstition. But that challenge to idolatry, I think, stresses that at the very heart of the Reformation wasn't just a concern about salvation. It was a concern about where is God to be found? And even deeper than that, mm-hmm. who is God? And that mm-hmm. challenge of how we relate truthfully with God is ultimately not just a soteriological question, but a, the- a theological one in the proper sense of that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the places, uh, one of the most profound treatments of, of that uh, that I've, I've ever come across is a, an essay by David Yego. David Yego, he's a Lutheran scholar and teaches up in at Trinity School of Ministry in Pittsburgh now. A brilliant, brilliant Lutheran scholar. Um, unfortunately, has not published, I don't know that he's published any books. He, the uh, legend has it that he's been working on a systematic theology for some decades. He's supposed to be doing some kind of uh, work on the Book of Romans, uh, a, a theological commentary on Romans. But you can find his essays scattered around in various journals uh, if you have access to a, a database. The essay that I'm thinking of is in a book called The Catholicity of the Reformation, uh, edited by, uh, I think, by Carl Broughton and uh, Robert Jensen. And what uh, Yego shows in that is that what, what you were just saying is that the, the issues that drove Luther, not just the Reformers, but Luther early on in the Reformation, the, and the, the uh, dilemma that leads him to the Reformation turn that he takes is an issue about idolatry and uh, the search for the true God and knowledge of the true God, it, and it's not merely a soteriological issue. It's about um, it's about how he can know whether he's had contact with the true God. And uh, Diego argues that the ultimate res- resolution of that for Luther is not a rejection of the uh, kind of liturgical and sacramental tradition of the church, but rather a return to an undistorted earlier understanding of the sacramental and liturgical life of the church. The God that uh, Luther ultimately discovers is the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, and there is no other God than that. And he continues to come to us and give himself to us through word and sacrament. That's a sociological question because it's about how you come to have communion with God, but it's also a question of the identity of God. Who is, who is the true God? The true God is the one who has shown himself in Jesus Christ. Uh, you want one essay, one kind of uh, earth-shaking essay on the Reformation, Jaeger uh, would be my choice. And that theological element, as we've been discussing, definitely comes to the foreground in a passage like Romans, the Romans 3 one that we're looking at, that this emphasis upon God's righteousness um, in the sense of his holiness and the accountability that we have before God as um, God as creator and the fact that God's the law will not be the means of our justification. Um, the law brings the knowledge of sin, but yet the righteousness of God in this other sense of God's righteousness is that which is his faithfulness, his commitment to his covenant, his commitment to bring about salvation that he has promised to his people. And the way that that is revealed is not just, again, the book of Romans, which was at the very heart of so much Reformation thought, is a book about God, how God has revealed himself in Christ and his righteousness um, 
not just as a, a standard against sin, but as his faithfulness to his promises, his um, commitment to save. And even as we fall short of the glory of God, there's nothing in us that um, sets us, marks us out as fitting recipients of this grace that we have by sure by sheer gift and grace received the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, I think the the Romans three passage is a as you say it highlights these Reformation themes in in the in the light of recent work on Paul, starting with the new the now middle aged new perspective on Paul, kind of changes changes the the focus of the passage. I don't think it I don't think it undermines at all the insights that the Reformation had into Romans, the soteriological insights. Uh, and I don't think it at all undermines the application of the Reformation's application of Romans and Galatians to the Catholic system that it was confronting. But it does change the focus of the passage. And I think that the possibility that righteousness of God in verse 21, for example, verse 22, might refer not to the righteousness that he gives, which is what Luther ultimately comes to, but rather that the righteousness that God, uh, that's an attribute of God, but not understood in terms of uh, punitive justice, but the righteousness of God as his covenant faithfulness, as his determination to keep his promises and to restore and to glorify creation. If you, if you open that possibility, then the, then the tenor of the passage changes. And part of it is, as you said, to, uh, to tilt it somewhat more in the direction of a question of uh, theology proper, who is God? And Romans is not simply about, it's not simply the Romans road of how you come to be saved. You're following a history, an order of salutis, an order of salvation, going through the various stages of uh, conviction of sin, repentance, belief in Jesus Christ, uh, and then reception of the gift of righteousness. But it's rather about God's demonstration of his righteousness before the world. I, and I do think that that's really the focus of the end of Romans 3 here. I don't think that the passage is, I don't think it's about the redemption of an individual sinner. I think it's about what God has done in the midst of history to demonstrate his righteousness. We access that and we receive the benefits of that through believing, through our faith in Jesus. But I think the passage is actually about what God has done historically. So, for example, when he says that um, the righteousness of God Verse 21, apart, apart from the law of righteousness, God had been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. That's the way my NESB translates it. Through faith in Jesus Christ, that's the pistis Christu, it's a genitive, could be translated the faith of Jesus Christ, as uh, Richard Hayes has pointed out and others have, have pointed out. That's, a, that's an ambiguous, the genitive is ambiguous. It could go, either be the faith that we place in Jesus Christ, or it could be the faith that characterizes Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, his loyalty to his Father. So um, and I think we, we have to take it that way in verse 22. Otherwise, we've got this kind of tautology. Uh, the righteousness of God is revealed or manifested through our faith in Jesus for those who have faith in Jesus. Maybe not exactly a tautology, but it's repetitive. But if we take it instead as the righteousness of God is revealed through the faith of Jesus Christ, parentheses, through his faithful death on the cross, for those who believe, then we actually have a uh, sequence of argument. The righteousness of God is revealed in history, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in his loyalty to his Father, and that righteousness then becomes ours. We share in that righteousness 
by our own faith in Jesus Christ. We could also have the alternative where it's neither straightforwardly subjective or objective genitive, but could be seen as similar to the expression Abrahamic faith, where Abrahamic faith is the faith of Abraham, but also the faith of those who walk in the footsteps of Abraham, who are his children, who grow out of um, his faithfulness. And in the same way, the faith of Jesus Christ is the faith exemplified by Christ as he goes towards the cross and performs his mission. But it's also the faith that originates in, that participates in, and that's oriented towards that event and that reality. And so it's faith in, faith of, and it's that it's a broader participation in that, that in all of its different, in the various facets of that, um, the righteousness of God is revealed through that. Mm-hmm. I think that Paul's definitely playing with those different meanings, even if, even if we take pistis in verse 22, faith, to refer to Jesus' own faith or loyalty to his Father. Paul immediately uses the verb form, pistuo, in the following clause. So there's the faith of Jesus, the, the proper response to the faith of Jesus is our faith. So there, Paul's definitely playing with that that duality. Verse 25, I think, also would support a reading that places the emphasis on what God did in Christ. Uh, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation. This demonstrates his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God passed over the sins previously committed. So there's a, a time of forbearance in which, as Paul says elsewhere, God winks at sin. That's, I think, probably a King James translation. But now he's demonstrating his righteousness to show himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has the faith of Jesus. That demonstration or that public display of Jesus as a propitiation, that took place 2,000 yards ago on the cross. That's the demonstration of God's justice, and it's also the means of justification. So um, I think uh, verse 25, I think, uh, indicates that the argument is Paul's claims are about what God did in Christ. And then when he talks about our belief, he's talking about how we come to share in that, how we come to have access to the benefits of Christ. As uh, N.T. Wright has pointed out, the, you, you, you continue to have here, as elsewhere in Romans, you continue to have a, an issue of the a Jew-Gentile relationship. The justification must be uh, apart from the works of the law, uh, apart from the particular demands that are placed on the Jews, because God is one. God is God not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Uh, God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcision through one means, through the faith of Jesus and through the faith that we have in the faithful one. So um, that Jew-Gentile issue is is looming in the argument throughout Romans. And at the end, when he talks about what becomes a boasting, it's excluded by what law? And that of works, by that of works, no, but the law of faith. And some might interpret law in that context as principle, but it would seemed to me that here, as elsewhere, particularly at the beginning of Romans 8, for instance, there is a, a treatment of the law and the Torah under the aspect of faith. Um, that it's not something that excludes that, but rather there's a way of approaching the Torah in terms of faith that doesn't negate it, but fulfills it. Yeah, Romans 3 is talking about what... Uh in Reformation terms, uh, would be the the gospel. When we get to Revelation, which actually refers to the gospel, the eternal gospel, 
we have a somewhat different uh, somewhat different characterization. Uh, the verses are uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 through 7. Uh, this is the announcement of the first of three angels that appear here in chapter 14. Uh, each of them has an announcement. They're flying through the sky and they have an announcement. Uh, in my Revelation commentary, I argue that the three angels in chapter 14 are comparable to the three woes that are announced at the end of chapter uh, at the end of chapter eight. There's an eagle flying in mid heaven. He's in the same position as the angels, and he pronounces a triple woe. Uh, and then over the course of the next several chapters, we have a description, a detailed description of what those woes involve. And we know that's the case because John pauses to say, the first woe is past, there's another one coming. Oh, that was the second woe. He doesn't identify the third woe, but he does use the word woe a third time in chapter 12 that I think links up with the back to the angel. So the three woes of the angel in chapter 8 lay out uh, the structure of the next several chapters. And I think the same thing is happening with the three angelic announcements in chapter 14. Uh, those announcements are laying out the, uh, they're previewing the episodes, the events that are going to be recounted in the next several chapters. So the first, the first angel announces the eternal gospel. Uh, he says with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth. That's uh, going to be language that's picked up in chapter 15, and he refers to the uh, judgments that are going to be worshipped, uh, or it refers rather to the, uh, uh, the Lord as being the Lord of heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Springs of water are going to come up in chapter 16. So there are allusions in that first angel's announcement to the things that are going to happen in chapters 15 and 16. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. That's presented in chapters 17 and 18. And then the third angel uh, refers to the worshipers of the beast who have the mark on the forehead, and they're going to end up in uh, tormented in, a, uh, in fire and brimstone, and that's something that comes up later on in chapters 19 and 20 uh, with the uh, destruction of the false prophet and uh, others in the uh, lake of fire. So the three angels uh, lay out the sequence of things that are going to be announced in or, or going to be detailed in the following chapters. So that's just, just to give a uh, kind of general scheme for how this fits into this section of Revelation. Uh, what's, what's intriguing about this, again, getting back to our Reformation Day theme, what's intriguing about this is that uh, the angel is said to have uh, an eternal gospel to proclaim, but then when he actually speaks, it doesn't sound like gospel. It's fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who has made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That doesn't sound like gospel in the way that uh, we tend to define it, and uh, many commentators have suggested that uh, the word gospel is not being, it, it doesn't, it, the, the John doesn't intend it uh, to be a uh, uh, equivalent to the kind of the gospel that's preached by the church or the gospel that's preached by Jesus. It has a more narrow connotation here in Revelation 14. I actually think that it's, the term is being used in a way that's much closer to the way it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. When you think about the gospels, when Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the message is not uh, justification by faith. Uh, the message is a demand to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, and that sounds a lot like what the angel says here. Fear God, give him glory, repent, because his hour of judgment has come. The coming of the kingdom is uh, liberation, it's freedom, it's salvation. 
but it's salvation that comes through judgment. And the way to orient yourself rightly to the coming of the kingdom is to repent. And I think the angel is saying something very similar to the way Jesus, to what Jesus preaches in the Gospels. Do you have any thoughts on the um, two fourfold cosmological lists, as it were, the nations, tribes, language, and people, and heavens, earth, seas, and springs of water? Particularly the reference to springs of water, it's not, it's not the typical um, reference. You'd usually have heavens, earth, and sea. Right. You're asking if there's if I see a correlation between the two lists of four. No, just more generally, any yeah. thoughts on those particular taxonomies? Uh, not a lot. I'm, I'm sure I deal with this in my commentary, but I'd have to go back and look at it, actually. Uh, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do. The nation, tribe, tongue, and people, I can uh, refer interested listeners to the very detailed discussion of it that uh, Richard Balcom has in his... Uh, book, uh, his, his big book on Revelation, the title of which I've forgotten right now. Climax of Prophecy. Um, the Climax of Prophecy. He has a, he has a lengthy discussion about that, that uh, the use of those four terms in Revelation, uh, and it's, um, he sees interesting numerological patterns with the way that they're used. The fact that you've got a fourfold classification of different people groups, that's interesting. Uh, Jim Jordan has argued that you have these different these different expressions for groups of people match different phases of uh, of human history that go back to the early chapters of Genesis and then uh, stretch out through the uh, stretch out through the rest of the Old Testament. So again, my commentary deals with that, summarizes that. And I, as I recall, I, I have a little bit of a summary in my commentary about Balcom's work on that phrase. The springs of water are interesting are an interesting uh, expression. Springs figure into Revelation a lot. Uh, usually they're in a third day slot, the third seal, the third trumpet, both, and the, I think the third bowl too. All of them afflict the springs of water, which uh, the third day is the uh, separation of land and sea. But in Revelation, that that is linked up with springs, water sources on the land. In terms of, in terms of the creation week, I think that uh, the implication is that we should see the formation of river systems as part of the formation of the land. When the when the water and land are separated, uh, there is that means that you have seas. That's one form of that's one kind of water, and it has certain kind of associations uh, throughout the Bible. But then you also have water that is uh, water that waters the land. It's you know we know it's fresh water as opposed to salt water. In biblical terminology, it's it's the water that uh, is associated with Israel. Uh, it's water that's associated with the garden that runs through the garden and out to the four corners of the earth. It's the water that's associated with the temple as the source of springs and so on. So um, it fits into that cosmology, but it's usually in Revelation, it's usually linked up with earth. So this particular sequence, you're going from, you're, you have a descending sequence, heaven, earth, sea, and then springs. Elsewhere in Revelation, you have the springs associated with earth rather than what seemed to be something under the earth. Here, springs seem to be uh, below the sea. But that, that too, is part of the, uh, that, too, is part of biblical cosmology. You think of the flood, for example, uh, where the, it's not just the rain is coming down from heaven, but you also have the, the fountains of the deep are unleashed, and you have the, the water coming up from the fountains of the deep. So that you have water that springs up within the earth, but then you ha- also have water that springs up from under the sea. So I, I suspect that, that uh, the the references to those under undersea springs that the Bible sometimes talks about. 
We've spoken about the um, Matthew 11 passage a little bit, but uh, before we close, we should say a few words about John 8. Just a, a few verses there um, where uh, Jesus is promising the Jews that they can have freedom if they become his disciples. They will have the truth, and that truth will liberate them. In John, truth is associated with grace, and both of them are associated with the coming of the new covenant. Uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, truth doesn't truth doesn't have a connotation of kind of a correspondence idea. It's not that Jesus is saying things that actually correspond to reality. That's that's the case, but that's not what the word truth means. It has more of an eschatological sense, and it has to do with what's being revealed in the coming of this last age. It's what's being revealed in the coming of the Messiah, the one who, who's greater than Moses. And that's the truth that's going to set them free. When they become disciples of Jesus, then they'll know the truth of, his, um, of, this, uh, of the kingdom, and that's what, that's what will liberate them. Of course, the Jews object that they've, they've, uh, they have never been enslaved. They're Abraham's offspring. That's an odd thing for Jews to say, because their whole story is, begins with the liberation from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus shifts the context of discussion by talking about slavery and sin, and the truth that he brings is delivering them from a slavery that's more uh, onerous, uh, more oppressive than slavery in Egypt is more oppressive than slavery to the Romans. Uh, slavery to Satan and sin is the uh, is uh, is the real form of slavery that they need liberation from. And if they were truly Abraham's seed, they would follow Jesus and they would be liberated from sin. And the contrast between slavery and sonship, I think, again, is a very strong Reformation theme that the status of the son does not depend on the son's performance, but upon the love of the, the parents and upon the fact that the son belongs to the family. And that contrast between slavery is the slavery is defined by, or the slave is defined by their labor for their master and what accrues from that. But their status is one that is in jeopardy in a way that the status of the son is not. And that liberation that Christ offers is a participation in his freedom as the son, um, which again is a strong reformation theme of union with Christ. And in context, the, the sonship is sonship to Abraham. Uh, Jesus is uh, claiming that those who are his followers are the true seed of Abraham. He's the true ultimate seed of Abraham. And those who want to be part of Abraham's household, to have Abraham as their father, uh, need to imitate the faith of Abraham and need to associate with the, the seed who is Jesus. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.